we're in Ezekiel 16, uh, right about 34, 35. We're going to look at the rest of the chapter. It's a study we're calling Like Mother, Like Daughter. Pastor and author Warren Wearsby often uses the following illustration, and so I give him credit for it. I heard about a pastor, he says, who gave a series of sermons on the sins of the saints. One member of the church, apparently under conviction, disapproved of the series and told the pastor so. After all, he said, sin in the life of a Christian is different from sin in the life of an unsaved person. Yes, it is, the pastor replied. It's worse. I want us to think about that conclusion in two ways as we work through the remainder of Ezekiel chapter 16. First, the sins of Israel were worse than those of the surrounding pagan nations because they knew the living God and they had His law to guide them. Second, sin in the church among Christians is far worse than Israel's because we have her example to warn us and because sinning against grace is worse than sinning against law. Now, the first 34 verses of chapter 16 describe the Jews in Judah and especially in Jerusalem, as an adulterous wife to God and as a harlot to the surrounding Gentile nations. God's judgment upon her is the subject of the rest of the chapter. And so we pick up in verse 35. Now then, O harlot, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, because your filthiness was poured out and your nakedness uncovered in your harlotry with your lovers and with all your abominable idols... And because of the blood of your children, which you gave to them, surely, therefore, I will gather all your lovers with whom you took pleasure, all those you loved and all those you hated. I will gather them from all around against you and will uncover your nakedness to them that they may see all your nakedness. And I will judge you as women who break wedlock or shed blood are judged. I will bring blood upon you in fury and jealousy. God described the sins of the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem as spiritual adultery. If they could see how they looked to God, they would see themselves as harlots who had sacrificed their own children for their lusts. We need to think less about how we look to others or in comparison to others and more about how we might look to God. How would I be dressed if my heart were made known. Not how am I physically dressed, but how am I spiritually dressed if my heart could be made known? What kind of a costume would I be wearing if my heart was exposed? Hopefully, it would be like that of a bride ready for the wedding because that's how we are described in the New Testament where the bride of Jesus Christ uh, were to be keeping ourselves ready, making ourselves ready for the coming of the Lord. And so it's, uh, it's kind of interesting, you know, to, uh, to maybe this thought will come to us by the conviction of the Holy Spirit sometime when we're in a situation and, and he'll say to us, hey, you know what costume you'd be wearing right now if, if you know, you were exposed and you think, wow, I, I better get my gown back on because I don't want to be without that. Now, under the law of God, this kind of a woman would be publicly exposed and then stoned to death. Think of the woman caught in adultery and brought to Jesus in the Gospel of John, just the first part of that story. She was brought naked and exposed, and the law required that she be stoned. That, that, that was the crux of it. Now, Jesus went on, as we'll see in a little while, to deal with that, 
But they, that's what you did with women who were caught in this kind of a situation. You drugged them naked, exposed them to everyone, and they were judged and stoned to death. And so in verse 39, I will also give you into their hand and they shall throw down your shrines and break down your high places. They shall also strip you of your clothes, take your beautiful jewelry and leave you naked and bare. They shall also bring up an assembly against you and they shall stone you with stones and thrust you through with their swords. They shall burn your houses with fire and execute judgments on you in the sight of many women. And I will make you cease playing the harlot and you shall no longer hire lovers. Now, the Jews were under a double judgment because the law also prescribed punishment for cities that were involved in idolatry. And these verses describe the coming invasion by Babylon as just such a judgment. They would be ruined by the sword. Now, the reference to these things happening in the sight of many women figuratively is probably referring to the surrounding Gentile nations, uh, assuming that we refer to nations in the feminine sense. <clears throat> and so he says the, the women around you are going to see this. And so the, and you remember Israel was to be a light to the Gentiles. It was to be an example to the Gentile nations. Uh, and, and God was going to have to make her, uh, we would say, a bad example. What happens when you turn away from the Lord? So in verse 42, so I will lay to rest my fury towards you and my jealousy shall depart from you. I'll be quiet my, and be angry no more because you did not remember the days of your youth, but agitated me with all these things. Surely I will also recompense your deeds on your own head, says the Lord, and you shall not commit lewdness in addition to all your abominations. Now, the Lord said that Jerusalem's judgment would alleviate his fury and his jealousy Think in terms of a husband who had an unfaithful wife, a wife who was a harlot, uh, worse than a harlot. She paid others to have sex with her. She was beyond repenting and God had no other alternative but to treat her according to the law. Where's the grace, you ask? Well, sit tight. It's at the end of the chapter. Even for all her sins, the Lord will promise to restore Israel in the future. So in verse 44... Indeed, everyone who quotes Proverbs will use this proverb against you. Like mother, like daughter. You are your mother's daughter, loathing husband and children. You are the sister of your sisters who loathe their husbands and children. Your mother was a Hittite and your father an Amorite. Now, we said last time that the reference to Israel's mother being a Hittite and her father being an Amorite, it's not really talking about the genealogy of Abraham and Sarah who gave birth really to the nation of Israel. It's a way of referring to the Gentile nations because they were in the land of Canaan when Israel was born as a nation via God's calling of Abraham. But what's interesting here, it could be too that this is a kind of insult because it sort of reminds you of that time that Jesus had a dialogue with the Jews and they were accusing him of being illegitimate. Uh, they, they uh, you know, uh, pulled that on him and, you know, you, you don't even know who your father is kind of a thing. And Jesus said, well, hey, you guys are of your father, the devil. Uh, and that's kind of what the Lord is doing here. He's saying, he's saying, hey, you're you're like your uh, mother and sisters, the, you know, these Gentile nations. And he's going to mention some of them in just a minute. And so it's, it's a 
you know, all of this has got to sting, right? I mean, think about it. I mean, God's saying you're an adulteress. Here you are. This is your condition. This is your spiritual review. It's, you know, in the 6th century B.C., this is where you guys in Jerusalem are at. You're spiritual adulterers. You're harlots with the nations. You're worse than harlots because you actually go after this stuff. Uh, and, and uh, you know, you're, you're like a child of the world, uh, of your mother and father, the Amorites and the Hittites. Now, if you're wondering who her sisters were, uh, God gives an illustration next, beginning in verse 46. He says, your elder sister is Samaria, who dwells with her daughters to the north of you, and your younger sister, who dwells to the south of you, is Sodom and her daughters. Now, you understand that this is figurative because both those cities had long passed away. He says in verse 47, You did not walk in their ways, nor act according to their abominations, but as if that were too little, you became more corrupt than they in all your ways. As I live, says the Lord God, neither your sister Sodom nor her daughters have done as you and your daughters have done. And so we see here that God is explaining the horror of their sin by way of comparison and contrast to these other cities. Samaria... Uh, was the capital of the northern kingdom called Israel. After Solomon died because of his sin, but uh, in faithfulness to David, God said, I'm not going to split the kingdom while Solomon is alive, but after he dies, the kingdom is going to split, and it did. Ten tribes in the north were called Israel. Two tribes in the south remained, and they were called uh, Judah. And so you had the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah, Sodom, of course, is the famous Gentile city that was destroyed by God in the book of Genesis. Uh, the point being emphasized here is that the Jerusalem Jews were worse than either of those cities. Uh, you know, you, you see these lists all the time of top cities to live in, worst cities to live in. Was, did we mention the other day, one of us, I think it was you know, Fresno is like the drunkest city, in, according to statistics. Fresno is the drunkest city in America, uh, based on different per capita statistical analysis and stuff like that. So, woo, you know, man, something to be proud of in Fresno, drunkest city in America. When, uh, when I went to the University of California at Riverside, we were the drunkest campus in the UC system at that time. Uh, and, you know, I think now Santa Barbara is the big party school, but we still we could still drink them under the table. But, uh, you know, it was terrible, you know. And so those are the kind you don't want those designations. And so here is Jerusalem supposed to be the center of the world and, and leading in the preaching of the gospel and bringing the news of the living God to all the other nations. And God says, hey, you remember Sodom? Your guys are worse than Sodom. Uh, that's pretty bad. That's, that's right down there. I wrote a letter one time. I have to tell you this story. It's so funny. I probably shouldn't have done this. But uh, uh, I say I have to couch this. So I, don't want, I don't want to see what can I say and what can I say. Anyway, there's this one particular group uh, of people, and they, they didn't want the kids to go on a particular missions trip. Uh, and so the, the one guy, he said, hey, would you write a, uh, a letter to the board, you know, from a pastor's perspective, saying how important it is to go you know, on missions and stuff like that. And so I did, and then I, I, went a, I took a little liberty because it, here it's going to talk a little about the sin of Sodom, which was pride and keeping their wealth to themselves and not sharing with others. And, and so I made a mention in there that I said, you know, it, when we do this kind of stuff, we're like the Sodomites. 
Uh, we're like the city of Sodom, and we don't want to be associated with them. Man, did I get phone calls uh, about that. When you start comparing people to the city of Sodom, you've drawn a line in the sand. Uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's on. I mean, when normally people read a letter and say, yeah, that's Pastor Gene at Calvary. He's a little bit out there. You know, we Sodom? What's that guy's number? You know, and, and I mean, it, I, they call me and they say, we're, we're offended. That, and I go, well, it, you know, it's not an improper use of the text. You know, I just, just let these kids go on their mission trip, you know. And no, uh, they still didn't let them go. But anyway, I tried. Now, Sodom is a good example of the teaching you find in the first chapter of Romans. It details what happens to Gentiles when they reject the revelation of God in their hearts and in creation in order to follow their own lusts. It's a long passage. It's going to be up there. I'm just going to read through it. It's an important passage, one I think that we should read a lot because it it really shows what's going on in our world. God has revealed himself to the hearts of men and in nature through creation. It's not a perfect revelation, but it isn't enough for them to reach out to God, but instead they reject God. And this is what happens to human society when they reject the revelation of God. Romans 1, beginning in verse 20, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools." They changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie, worshipped and served the creator, uh, creature excuse me, rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. Even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. And so this is... This is what happened to Sodom. Uh, they gave up the knowledge of God. They went into the downward spiral. They uh, kept their wealth to themselves. They were selfish and proud. Uh, outwardly, they began to uh, express themselves through homosexual relationships and all of those kinds of things until God finally destroyed them. But don't get off track. Remember what God is saying. God's saying, hey, you guys in Jerusalem who think I won't destroy my own temple and that you've got it made in the shade because I live there, my cloud of glory uh, is there. Hey, I'm done because you're worse than Sodom right now. Uh, And it's pretty heavy. Now, Samaria ought to have fared better, but they didn't. 
Uh, still, God said that both Sodom and Samaria were not as bad as Jerusalem. So in verse 51, Samaria did not commit half your sins, but you have multiplied your abominations more than they and have justified your sisters by all the abominations which you have done. You who judged your sisters bear your own shame also because the sins which you committed were more abominable than theirs. They are more righteous than you. Yes, be disgraced also and bear your own shame because you justify your sisters. When I bring back their captives, the captives of Sodom and her daughters and the captives of Samaria and her daughters, then I will also bring back the captives of your captivity among them that you may bear your own shame and be disgraced by all that you did when you comforted them. When your sisters, Sodom and her daughters, return to their former state, and Samaria and her daughters return to their former state, then you and your daughters will return to your former state, for your sister Sodom was not a byword in your mouth in the days of your pride. Before your wickedness was uncovered, it was like the time of the reproach of the daughters of Syria and all those around her and of the daughters of the Philistines who despise you everywhere. <clears throat> now this talk about bringing back Sodom and Samaria, this is a gracious look far forward to the kingdom of God on the earth after the second coming of Jesus Christ when God restores Gentile nations along with Israel. Now, the sins of Jerusalem Jews were worse than those of pagans. That's what he's saying. The Jews knew God and therefore they knew better. The sins of the Jerusalem Jews were worse than those of idolatrous Samaria. After all, the very presence of God dwelt in the temple at Jerusalem, not making an excuse for anyone's sin. Uh, but when you think about the Sodomites, the people of Sodom, they uh, they didn't have they had a revelation of God in their hearts and through creation. But they didn't have the full revelation of God the way the Jews in Jerusalem did. The Samaritans, they were the people of God, but they were away from the temple and they established their own worship. And so. The guys in Jerusalem and gals, I mean, they really had it going. I mean, they had the very presence of God. They had the temple. They had the rituals. They had everything that they needed for success. Uh, and in a sense, greater knowledge, greater condemnation upon them. Now, there seems to be... Uh, uh, so, sins of Jerusalem, worse than those of idolatrous Samaria. The sins of a Christian, I submit, are worse than those of the unsaved. We know better. Uh, I'm not saying there's anything good or right or okay about the sins of the unsaved that we cry out against, that we vote against, that we uh, lobby against. That's fine. That's, they're, they're wrong. They're unrighteous. They're, it's sin. Sin is sin. But uh, there's a sense in which those sins are worse when they're practiced by Christians because we know better. We have the presence of God in our lives. And they're, you know, the sins of... Uh, a Christian are worse than those of Samaria or Jerusalem by comparison because we have the actual indwelling presence of the power of God. There seems to be a tendency because we are under grace and not law to think more lightly of sin. We need to have the heart of the Apostle Paul who said, should we sin that grace might abound? Now he was answering a particular question that the Jews had about uh, the law and grace where it sounded like well, if you're not going to be under the law, then you're free to sin. But I think the general principle is we shouldn't even think that we would sin so that grace would cover it or abound. And Paul says, God forbid, God forbid that you would ever have that thought that you can think, well, 
yeah, this is sin, but I can indulge in this. God will forgive me. I'll be okay. Once saved, always saved, you know, kind of a thing. Uh, the, the only answer to that is God forbid that you would even think that. Now, we've all seen Christian friends fall into sin and ruin their lives. They're like Samaritans to us in that we ought to learn from their bad example and judge ourselves before sin ruins something or someone in our lives. There's a tendency, and God warned them in this passage we just read, hey, don't be judging you know, the Samaritans. Um, the Jews in Jerusalem looked to Samaria and said, oh yeah, Assyria came down and wiped them out and they had a kind of a smug attitude about it. Well, yeah, they left and they don't have the temple, they don't have the things that we have. Uh, and, and God is telling them, hey, judge yourself. Look at that and see where idolatry leads. Because the Jews in Jerusalem were doing things that were just as bad, it's just that they had a physical proximity that was closer to the temple. Uh, and so we, when we see our friends... Uh, you know, there, I think there's a human tendency to think, well, you know, that's not me. And there's a judgment. Some there's sometimes, sadly, we actually think that people, you know, oh, they brought it upon themselves. They deserve it. All of that may even be true. But God says this is a warning because those people didn't start out that way. They got born again, just like you. They their sins were forgiven, just like yours. They had a clean slate. Uh, they have all the benefits that you have, and they ended up over here in a Samaritan kind of a way, let that be a warning to us. Too many believers are calling Samaria their home by returning to the world. Don't follow their example thinking that it's cool or progressive Christianity. Let's learn from it and be warned to continue in the things of the Spirit. As I said, we have a tendency to think more lightly of sin. Once sin is exposed, we have a tendency to deal too harshly with it in the lives of others. We're hesitant to forgive unless... Folks, jump through hoops. We should not sin against grace, but when we sin, grace does abound. That woman brought to Jesus, exposed and deserving of stoning, you remember what Jesus said to her. He said, go and sin no more. He didn't minimize her sin, uh, but he dealt with it in grace. He said, go and sin no more. God's grace forgave her and God's grace empowered her. And so we need to get this right. We should abhor sin and avoid it in our lives. Once it's exposed, we need to go in the full forgiveness of Jesus Christ and sin no more in the power of the indwelling Spirit. We're going to study the life of David here coming up not too long. We'll get to the episode with Bathsheba, obviously, Lord willing. And one of my favorite pictures of the grace of God and the forgiveness of God is when God comes to David and he says, look, you've sinned, uh, you, I busted you, uh, you're going to have to pay, the child that was conceived is going to have to die. And so David, knowing the heart of God, believing that God could still change his mind in the sense of, of act according to his character, he fasted and he prayed and he fasted and he prayed for that child. And then the child died. They were afraid to tell him, remember? They thought he would, you know, you, I wouldn't want to be the one to tell David anything, tell you the truth. I mean, he's, you, you just, he's a, he could be volatile. He's a little volatile sometimes. But, you know, they finally told him. He got up. He cleaned himself up. He had a meal. He went about his business. And it really confused everybody. And they finally said, hey, what's, the, what's going on? God said the child was going to die. 
while, you know, while the child was still alive, you were in pain and sorrow and, you know, fasting and all this. Then as soon as the child died, you got up and you went about your business. And David said, well, yeah, of course, because uh, while the child was alive, uh, there was a chance, you know, that he might, that God might, you know, let him live. But then God took him. And so I'll have to see him when I die. And, and he understood how God operates in these situations. And, and he went from that situation, in a sense, he wanted to go and sin no more and, and receive that gra- grace of God and walk in that grace. And, and we still have trouble with that. I, I think sometimes we're afraid to extend forgiveness to people because we think that you know, they haven't done enough to earn forgiveness. Uh, now, I'm not saying that everybody who claims that they've repented has genuinely repented, but even in saying that, Jesus said if somebody sins against you 70 times in a day... Uh, Seventy times seven times in a day, how many times should you forgive him? Every time. Same offense. And so we need to, you know, hate sin before it happens and then afterwards we need to be willing to extend the forgiveness uh, that was purchased on the cross. And so uh, let's get that right. Verse 58, You have paid for your lewdness and your abomination, says the Lord. For thus says the Lord God, I will deal with you as you have done who despised the oath by breaking the covenant. Nevertheless, I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. As the chapter closes, we're transported to the future of Israel and the Gentile nations. The Jews will have paid for their lewdness and abominations and be restored. God sees it as keeping His unconditional promises in a series of covenants God made with Israel. They're called by scholars the Abrahamic covenant, the Palestinian covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and the Davidic covenant. We don't have time to go into all of them. Scholar J. Dwight Pentecost summarizes them by saying, when the covenants are studied, we find these features. A nation forever, a land forever, a king forever, a throne forever, and a kingdom forever. God has an eternal plan for the nation of Israel. In the future, He will keep the unconditional promises in His prior covenants with them. And He says He'll initiate what is called the new covenant. That covenant is described by Jeremiah in chapter 31 where he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, I will be their God. They shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. They'll all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Now, this new covenant guarantees that the Jews will be permanently restored in their land, that they'll experience a national conversion to Jesus Christ, that they'll be regenerated and receive a new spiritual heart. It happens at... Uh, at and after the second coming of Jesus Christ. The final verses of chapter 16 anticipate the reaction of the Jews at that second coming when it says, verse 61, Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you receive your older and younger sisters, for I will give them to you for daughters, but not because of my covenant with you. And I will establish my covenant with you. Then you shall know that I am the Lord, that you may remember and be ashamed and never open your mouth anymore because of your shame when I provide you an atonement for all you have done, says the Lord God. 
When Jesus returns, his people will receive him. The scripture says they will look upon them, him whom they have pierced, and they will understand that they, they are the people who rejected uh, their Messiah historically, and they will be pierced in their hearts. And, and this is an Old Testament look at that. The Gentile nations will be restored along with the Jews, and then Jesus will rule and reign upon the earth for a thousand years from his throne in Jerusalem. If this new covenant is made by God with Israel, where do we fit in? Well, the blessings of the new covenant are promised to the physical descendants of Israel, but the unbelief of the Jews opened the door for Gentile evangelism. The age in which we live is sometimes called the fullness of the Gentiles. Romans 11.25, the believers of the church age are said to be graciously grafted in like a graft on an olive tree. In other words, we experience the blessings of the new covenant now. When the fullness of the Gentiles has come to an end, God will return his focus to the Jews and through the great tribulation he will save his chosen people. We experience the spiritual blessings promised in the new covenant with Israel right now, but God is still dealing with Israel as a nation and will most definitely fulfill all of his promises to the Jews. And so as I've told you for over the years, God is still dealing with the physical descendants of Abraham. He still has a plan for national Israel. There is a postponement in that plan uh, as we live now in this church age until this fullness of the Gentiles, until the last Gentile of the church age is saved. Then God takes up his task again of bringing Israel to salvation through the great tribulation. The big question today, the question people are asking is this. Is the world coming to an end? Some people are sincerely asking it. Some are insincerely asking it. I mean, some people really don't care, but a lot of people are kind of scared. Uh, either way, that's a, a question. It's, it's in movies, on television, in magazines. It's on the lips of people that you know. And the answer is no, not really. Not in the way people think. What's happening is that prophecy is being fulfilled. The world is going to be refreshed and then recreated. The world isn't coming to an end in one sense. Not, people think, does that mean there's going to be a nuclear holocaust or, or some kind of implosion you know, from within or is an asteroid going to hit the earth? Or They mean, are we going to be wiped out as a race? And is it all meaningless? And the answer to that is no. None of those things are going to happen. Some wild things are going to happen, but they're all spelled out in the Bible. We know all about them. We've got a handle. We're the only ones who know about this stuff. All these people are trying to add the Mayans to the Bible and Nostradamus to the Bible and, and the Hopi Indians to the Bible and say, oh, everybody has these crazy predictions about... No, no, they don't. They have crazy predictions. We have fulfilled prophecies. And, and you know, most of the prophecy of the Bible has been fulfilled and what hasn't will be. Uh, and so we're, we're really in a good position to talk to people about what's going on. We're at the heart of it right now living in constant anticipation of the imminent rapture of the church. You know, years ago when I first got saved, I, it was hard to talk to people about Bible prophecy because times were good, uh, there weren't all these kind of crazy things going on, and uh, th there just wasn't a real emphasis on the end of the world. Uh, now's a great time to talk to people about Bible prophecy because they're, they're wondering about the end of the world. And, and we've got the handle on that. And so... Uh, you know, I, I remember a message I heard one time at Harvest Christian Fellowship. At the, the minister, the pastor said, uh, if you know Jesus Christ, you know enough 
to tell somebody about Jesus Christ. And uh, we know an awful lot about the Lord and about prophecy. You don't have to know everything perfectly. That's not what people are looking for. Uh, They're looking for a personal relationship with a God who can forgive their sins and guarantee that they're going to heaven. And uh, if you're saved, you know that. uh, And you got there by the grace of God, and so can they. Amen? Amen.